So throughout history, there have been some remarkable child prodigies. I looked it up as I was working on my sermon, and some of the things that these children are doing, it would take me a, it, it would take me a lifetime and more to even get close to mastering some of the things that they have mastered. And perhaps the most famous child prodigy is the musician and composer Wolfgang Mozart. Mozart began playing the piano by ear at the age of three. By the time he was six, he began composing his own pieces. And at age seven, he and his older sister, who was also remarkably talented, began touring Europe, giving concerts to uh, the nobility as well as the public and the people. And then a year later, at the age of eight, Mozart composed his first symphony. Or a modern-day example of a child prodigy is a man named Kim Eun-young. He was born in South Korea in 1963, and by the time he was four, he was able to read and speak Korean, Japanese, German, and English. And at the same age, he was also able to solve these complex calculus problems that he would see on his Japanese television. At the age of seven, Kim came to the USA at the invitation of NASA, where he received his PhD before he turned 16, a PhD in physics. Now, these are some remarkable children when we look at the things that they have done, but in our passage this morning, we're going to look at another instance of an even more remarkable child prodigy, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this this passage is interesting because it's the only biblical record that we have of Jesus' childhood. It's the only record that we have. Now, other people have attempted to write things about the childhood of Jesus. For example, you may have heard of something called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. This was written sometime in the second century, and the author tried to write about some of the childhood experiences of Jesus from the ages 5 to 12. And there are some interesting things that are said in that gospel. Uh, for example, Jesus, he, as a boy, he's playing in the, the mud and he forms these birds out of mud and then he b- blows his breath into them and they all of a sudden come alive and fly away. Or uh, his friend falls off the roof and Jesus comes and he resurrects his friend. Or uh, there's even some kind of off-putting things that are written. Jesus uh, is bumped into by another child by accident, and he curses the child, and, and the child dies. And it's a whole list of these other things. The only problem is that none of this is, is actually true. I agree with uh, Eusebius. Maybe you've heard of Eusebius. He was the earliest church historian of the fourth century, and he rightly called this work a heretical fiction. And so then that leaves us with the only true record of Jesus' childhood and adolescence, and it's this passage that we are going to read this morning. And as we're reading through, I want you to ask yourself the question, why is this story in the Bible? Why is this story in the Bible? Why did, why did Luke add this to his account of Jesus' life? I mean, Matthew, Mark, and John don't include it in their Gospels, and yet Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, included it in his gospel for a reason. And the goal of our sermon this morning is to figure out what that reason is. What is God teaching us from 
this passage. So turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verse 40 to 52. And this is going to be our last look at the infancy narrative of Jesus from the book of Luke. Starting in, in verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposed him to be in the group that they went a day's journey. In the group, they, in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. So this passage is, is special because here we read the very first recorded words of Jesus. And on the surface, they may not appear to really be anything special or profound, but as we walk through, we'll see that these words really set the, the tone of Jesus' ministry and mission. And in these two small questions he asks, he really sets uh, what he is going to come and do as the Son of God. And we will get to those words eventually, but first let's, let's look at the context leading up to it. So we read in verse 40, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of the Lord was upon him. Now verse 40 sets really the theme for this passage. It begins with a statement about Jesus being filled with wisdom and the favor of the Lord upon him. And then if you look down at the last verse of this passage, something very similar is said. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And so what Luke is doing here is he's bookending this passage with this idea that Jesus is filled with wisdom and the favor of God is resting upon him. And then right in the middle of that, he's going to give an example of that. So in, in studying the passage, this is called a, a chiasm. You know, it starts, uh, or yeah, a chiasm. Yeah, it starts with something and then it ends with something and then in the middle it builds up to uh, the climax of the event, which is going to be the words of Christ himself. 
And this story begins, this example of Jesus uh, growing in wisdom and the favor of God resting upon him begins with his family making their way to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. Verse 41 says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And so Mary and Joseph, they are from Nazareth, about 80 miles away from Jerusalem. But every year, they would make the journey to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So in the, in the Old Testament, according to Deuteronomy 16, there were three feasts that men would have to travel to Jerusalem for. You have the Feast of Weeks, you have the Feast of Booths, and then you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, was the Feast of Passover. And that was the, really the most important of these festivals, the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread. It was really a, a highlight of the Jewish feasts and a time of, of celebration and remembrance and excitement. And I want you to try and kind of visualize the scene that is happening here. You know, we can often think of, of Passover like we think of our family Easter dinners. And we show up at mom's house at three o'clock, we chat for a little while, you know, we meet up with that weird uncle that we only ever see at Easter, we, we eat dinner, we snack on some cherry pie, and then by nine o'clock we, we head home. But that's not what, what Passover was like at all. You know, this was a, a massive and wonderful week-long festival of celebration and worship. As many as 200,000 pilgrims making their way into the city walls of Jerusalem. All the rooms that could be rented out were rented out. People would open up their houses and have visitors come in to stay with them. Sheep and livestock were everywhere. As people were either traveling with their, their, their flock that they were going to sacrifice or purchasing them for sacrifice in the temple. All the priests and the rabbis would be there. Everybody who is who is somebody was going to be in Jerusalem during the Passover. The priests would have to come and serve two weeks throughout the year uh, in Jerusalem, but all of the priests would have to come and serve in that week during Passover. The rabbis would be sitting and teaching and sharing their wisdom for all the people to hear. There would be vendors lining the streets with clothing and goods and food from places all across the world. And there would be singing and rejoicing and dancing all around. And so you can, you can imagine the excitement and energy that Jesus is feeling. And we're told that, that Jesus is 12 years old. Now, uh, according to tradition at that time, it was not until a boy was 13 where he was considered a man and he was required to attend Passover. But many of the parents would often bring uh, their sons, when they were around 11 or 12 years old, for them to really get an understanding of the customs that they would soon be participating in when they became a man. And so this was likely Jesus, one of Jesus' you know, first real experiences with the Passover. And he would have been partaking in all of these events and festivities along with his father. He would have entered into the temple with Joseph. You know, early in the day, carrying the lamb for his father. He would have passed the lamb to the priest and watched as the priest stood there and 
killed the lamb, drained its blood, and offered it as a sacrifice. He and Joseph would have then cleaned up the animal, taking the wool for themselves or maybe giving it as a gift to the family that they were staying with. They would have taken the meat with them and then headed home to prepare a feast for the Lord. The whole family or perhaps other families would join them and then shortly after sundown, they would have gathered for this massive meal together. This would have been followed by a time of singing psalms, a time of lifting up prayers and recounting the great story of the Exodus when God delivered the Jews out of slavery and bondage to Egypt. After this, some would have went to bed. Others would have gone out to celebrate more in the streets. And so others would return back to the temple once again to enter into worship and prayer. And so hopefully now you have a a picture in your mind of what Passover was like. It wasn't just an evening potluck. It was a magnificent time of celebration and worship. Eventually, though, after the seven days of celebration would come to an end and the last of the pilgrims began exiting the city back to their homes, we see that Joseph and Mary begin to do the same thing in verse 43. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposed him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. See, if you were, if you were traveling to and from Jerusalem, it was never wise to travel alone. In our modern times, you know, most of the crime happens in our cities, and so being rural can, can often be safer these days, but in Bible times, the cities were more so the places of safety. There's definitely crime that still happened, but it was much more dangerous to be out, outside of the city walls, on the outskirts of the city. And so, uh, if you were to travel by yourself to and from Jerusalem or just with your family, you would probably have been robbed and beaten. We see this in the story of you know, the Good Samaritan. And so most people would travel in these, these caravans of people. And I imagine that Jesus' parents just assumed that, that Jesus was somewhere in the caravan with them. I mean, Jesus was a, a 12-year-old boy. He was old enough. He was probably off you know, walking alongside with his friends or talking with someone else in the caravan. So Mary and Joseph didn't really, like they weren't checking up on him every, uh, every hour or so. They assumed he, he would be with them. It's like when my family used to go camping. My parents would come, we'd quickly set up the trailer, I'd hop on my bike, and then I'd be gone until dinner time, going around biking on the trails, playing basketball, doing all of these things, knowing that when dinner time rolled around, I had to be back. Well, in Jesus' case, his parents are, are doing something similar, but dinner time rolls around, and they start to wonder where Jesus is. He hasn't come back, and so they begin going around asking their relatives and friends, you know, have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? And they keep getting that same answer that they feared. We haven't seen him since we left Jerusalem. And you can imagine kind of the immediate feeling that Mary and Joseph are getting there. And we know that feeling when something bad happens, we just kind of get like a, a sickness in our, 
stomach. I remember being lost in a shopping mall and my, my mom's worried and sad face when I was finally found by a worker. You know, Mary and Joseph are probably filled with the same feelings. A little bit of frustration, a little bit of embarrassment that they forgot their kid in Jerusalem, and probably a lot of fear, you know, wondering where Jesus is and if Jesus is okay. And so they eventually realize that he's not in the caravan, and so he must be back in Jerusalem. And so they wait out the night and then head back the next morning for another day's journey and begin to search the city. And they arrive in Jerusalem and they start looking, maybe Let's check our friend's house that we visited while we were here. Maybe he's there. Nope, he's not there. Let's, okay, let's go check the hotel, the inn that we stayed in. Maybe he's there. He needed a place to sleep. Nope, he's not there. Okay, well, what about the marketplace? I mean, he had to, he's got to eat something. Maybe he's there. But still, he's not there. And then one of them decides, or maybe both together, well, what about the temple? I mean, maybe he's at the temple worshiping God. And sure enough, After a a day of searching, there he is. And look at what he's doing in verses 46 and 47. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. See, Jesus is there in the temple listening and reasoning with the greatest rabbis of his time. At the age of 12, he's already at the point of wisdom where people are, are looking at this child, they're listening to what he's asking, to what he's saying, and they're astonished at how he answers these questions. And this takes us back to those two bookends of our passage. This is verse 40. Jesus is, is filled with wisdom. He's increasing with wisdom and favor with God. And now he's displaying this wisdom for all to see. And I want to make a a quick side note of application for us here. Look at what Jesus is doing at the age of 12. He is sitting, reasoning, and diving deep spiritually into the things of God. I want want you to ask yourself this. Do we expect or encourage such things in our 12-year-olds? I know what your immediate answer or objection is going to be. Well, Jesus is God, and my children are not. But I want to challenge you on that a little bit. Keep in mind that verse 52 says that Jesus is increasing in wisdom. It means that he's, he's growing in wisdom. He's learning wisdom every day. And we know that God is all-knowing, and therefore God cannot increase in wisdom. And so what must this mean? Well, it means that Jesus is doing these things in his humanity. He's not just pulling the, the God card and saying, I know all the answers because I am God. No, he's He's increasing in wisdom, learning and growing as a child and soon to be a man. Which means that to a degree, we can model this example of Jesus. And so all that to say, you need to hold your kids to a high standard. Not that they have to be as 
as wise as Jesus was, but recognize that your child can do far more than you might think. They can do far more than you might think. Sometimes we can have this notion that our, our adolescents are somehow beyond spiritual reflection, that, that once they mature a little bit more, once they become a, an adult, then these things will start becoming serious to them. Then they'll be able to dive deep spiritually. And I quickly want to say that is, that is a wrong way of thinking. The Bible, no way, the Bible doesn't really leave this room of, of, of adolescence where teens or, or anyone is given an, an, an opportunity to have a break from seeking the Lord spiritually. Our children are not beyond spiritual reflection. I mean, society tells us that they are, but here in the, in the first two chapters of Luke, we already have a 13-year-old Mary who is expressing great wisdom, faith, humility, and trust in the Lord. And then we have a 12-year-old Jesus who is showing the, the aged wisdom of a wise old man. And so don't underestimate what your children are capable of when you as parents put in the time to train them in spiritual matters and to encourage them, to reflect on them. And so I quickly want to give you a few, a few practical ways that you can do that. First one is that you need to be doing family worship with your family. You need to be doing family worship. And family worship, what that, what that involves is it's setting aside time with your family where each day you, you all sit down, you read God's word together, you pray together, and you sing a song together. And it doesn't have to be this you know, elaborate 30-minute Bible study where you're talking about what the Greek means and what the Hebrew means. It can just be working through a few verses or maybe a chapter, asking your children questions, letting them ask you questions, and fostering in them this, this knowledge of God's Word and a desire to understand it. And if the only time that, that your children are hearing the Word of God taught to them is when they come to church on Sunday, then you can't expect your children to, to love the Word of God, to, to uh, love to, to learn more about the deep spiritual things of the faith. Now, I am not the primary teacher of your children. Fathers, you are the primary teachers of your children. And so, if you're not teaching your children of the Word of God, that is something that you need to do. That's something that God commands us to do in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And so that's the first thing. Start doing family worship with your family. Second, don't always send your kids away. Don't always send your kids away. And what I mean by that is this notion of, of kids, you go and play while us adults talk about, you know, important spiritual things. And I know that I am guilty of this. You know, sending the kids away thinking it will bore them or they'll be happier just playing. And there are times for that, for sure. Our kids don't have to always be with us. They can go and play with their friends. But there are also times when you shouldn't send your kids away. And those moments can then be used to, to help them and encourage them as children to grow and develop spiritually. In the, in the church today, there's a lot of, of age, age segregation. You know, in modern Christianity, you have you know, every different type of age group where you can send your kids off, uh, where they just learn with those of their age. And there's times for that, and, and there's benefits for that. I 
one of the most, one of the greatest things for me when I became a Christian was having peers my own age who loved the Lord and we encouraged one another. But in the Bible, we often see, you know, it is a family. Christianity is a family religion. And the children are with the parents and they're learning together. And so don't always send your children away. Use those moments to to develop them spiritually and develop them in maturity. And then thirdly, you need to model to your children what a Christian looks like. Model to your children what a Christian looks like. Show them what it means to love the Word of God. Show them what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Show them what it means to sacrificially serve someone else. And when you go to help someone, bring your kids along to come and help them. Show them what it means to to get excited about the things of God. Show them what it means to, to cry tears when you're struggling and then the Word of God comes and, and, and speaks the words that your own, your own soul can't think of to speak. Your children's view of Christianity is most going to be shaped by you. It's most going to be shaped by you and what your children are seeing you doing. They're going to think to themselves, that is what a Christian does. That's what a Christian is. And so take advantage of that. Be a model of a faithful Christian to them. And if you want, if you want help with any of this or, or you don't know where you should start, you think, I want to start family worship, but it's awkward. It's just me and my you know, two-year-old daughter who can't sing or can't pray. You know, that's where we started. We started when it was just my wife and I, and it was a little bit awkward at first, but you know, it's lovely. Now my children... Uh, when they make the plan for the night, oh, first we're going to do this, then we're going to do this, then we're going to do this, uh, they never leave out uh, the reading of God's Word and the singing together. And so if you want help with that, if you, or if you want prayer to continue on in that or just encouragement, please come and talk to me. I would, I would love to encourage you, especially you fathers, uh, in that. All right, done with that little quick kind of side note of, of Jesus being a 12-year-old and and having this great wisdom and us expecting and encouraging uh, a certain level of wisdom and maturity in our children. Let's get, let's get back to uh, an example of Jesus' wisdom and his words uh, in 48 and 49. It says, And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And so here we're introduced to the the crux of our passage. The words of Jesus. Now Jesus' parents are, I think, a little understandably upset. You know, they've been... They've been worried sick about Jesus, but, but Jesus poses, when, when they said, why have you done this? Jesus poses to them a question. He says, why were you looking for me? Why were you looking for me? Now, he's, he's not meaning it like, why did you come back for me? Like, he's meaning it, why were you looking anywhere else? You didn't need to look anywhere else. You should have known where I would be. And they should have known where he was because of the words he says next. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now within this tiny little question, there's tons of 
information that Jesus provides for us about who he is and what his mission is. First, Jesus says, I must. Now, the Greek there literally means it is necessary. This, this must happen. It is necessary. Jesus here is making a claim of obligation. That is, he has an obligation to be in his father's house. Now, the original Greek doesn't actually have the word house in there. If you, if you look down at your Bible, you'll see there's probably a little number beside the word uh, house. And that's because the word house in Greek isn't actually there. So some translations will say, I must be about my father's business. And so the, what, what Jesus is saying here then is that he has an obligation to be first and foremost you know, doing the will of his father in heaven. And we see this, <coughs> and we see this all throughout Jesus' ministry. Jesus will say very clearly in John chapter 6, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And then reaffirms that again in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he says, Not my will, but your will be done. You see, Jesus' primary allegiance lies with his Father who is in heaven. And the same is true for all of us. Our relationship with God and our allegiance to God transcends even our closest relationships. A husband and wife, parent and child, sibling and sibling. These are all relationships that, that are blessings from God, but if any of these stand in the way of your relationship with God or get elevated above it, they need to be taken and put back in their right place. And that's how those relationships are going to flourish when they're oriented properly in God's design for our relationships. And I'm not saying here that, that Jesus was like putting his parents in their place, but what he was doing was making a definitive statement that it is necessary. It is most necessary, more necessary than anything else that he be doing the Father's will, that he be about his Father's business, that he be in his Father's house. And now, the question that is kind of posed to us implicitly here is, can you say the same thing? Can you say the same thing? Is the primary desire in your life to fulfill the will of God? Is that what you orient all of your decisions around? Am I desiring here to do the will of God? Or is, is God's will just an afterthought after you've already started pursuing your own? And now we don't know, you know the will of God in every circum, certain circumstance that we experience. You know, we don't know God, God is willing me to go to this university instead of this university. God is willing me to, to marry this person instead of, you know, another person, maybe in the future. There's, there's certain things where we shouldn't expect a, a voice from God to say, this is my will for you, that you, you know, attend Brock University. Instead, the Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. We seek God. Seeking the will of God is seeking the Lord in prayer, seeking him through scripture, seeking him through the wise counsel of those in your lives. And then God is going to give you the desire to do 
his will. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all of these things will be added to you. And so we need to be people who, who seek the will of God above all things, just as Christ sought the will of his Father. Now, second thing that we learn from Jesus' words here, and I think it's the most critical thing that, that we get from this passage, and that's that Jesus calls God his Father. He calls God his Father. Now, earlier I asked why, why is this passage special? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire Luke to have this section in his gospel? And this here is the reason why. Because here is the moment that Jesus realizes and makes known that he is the Son of God. Up to this point in the gospel, many others have made claims about Jesus. You have the angel coming and announcing his birth. You have Elizabeth saying, the mother of my Lord. You have Mary. You have the shepherds. You have Simeon and Anna. But here, we have Jesus speaking it in his own words, claiming to be the Son of God. And now we hear this term, Jesus is the Son of God. And I think we hear it so often, it sometimes doles down in our minds what it actually means and how radical this claim actually is. For Jesus to claim to have God as his Father is not a small claim at all. In the 39 books of the Old Testament, all 23,000 verses that are there, only 14 times is God called Father. And it's never in a, a personal way. And yet, Jesus, in just the four Gospels, calls God his Father 60 times. 60 times. See, Jesus' identity as the Son of God was, was essential to who he was and was different from, what, from anything else that had been seen before in all of redemptive history. And to claim to be the Son of God is really, why it's such a radical claim is to claim to be the Son of God is to claim to be God himself. See, when the Bible uses the word Son, it's using it as a, as a title. When the Bible talks of us as being sons of disobedience, it's not meaning we are, are you know, born by some abstract concept of disobedience. It means that we are that is how we are categorized. That is what we are of. We are of disobedience. And so when Jesus is called the Son of God, it's in reference to his nature, not his origin. It does not mean that he was created by God, but rather that he bears the title of the Son of God and is God, you know, of the very nature of God. And so to claim to be the Son of God was to claim to be God. And that is why the religious leaders wanted to stone him for blasphemy. Jesus didn't, doesn't come out and say uh, the words, I am God, because he didn't need to. He was already saying that when he said, I am the Son of God. Listen to John 5, verse 18. For this reason, they tried, to, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And then again, Jesus, as he's standing before the Sanhedrin, before his crucifixion, they ask him this question. I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And when Jesus replies, 
He says, it is as you say. And then the high priest tears his clothes and says, he has spoken blasphemy. Why need any more witnesses? And that is because Jesus said he was the Son of God, which is to claim to be God himself. And it was a claim that got him crucified and killed. And yet, it was because he was the Son of God that he could offer himself in our place and that the sacrifice would be acceptable to God. Now, this is what makes Jesus so special. This is what makes this moment here so special. C.S. Lewis, when, when talking about how the world sees Jesus, he makes the note that people often say that Jesus is a good teacher, he taught good moral things, but he's not the Son of God in the sense that he claimed to be. And Lewis, he, he challenges people on this. He says, hold up. Jesus doesn't give you that option. He doesn't give us the option to say he's just a good teacher, but he's not the Son of God. Jesus only gives us three options of who he actually is. He's either Lord, as he claims to be, or he is a liar, or he is a lunatic. See, he claimed to be the Son of God, and either he is, in which case we bow down to him as Lord, or he isn't, in which case he's a liar, knowing that he wasn't the Son of God, yet still claimed to be the Son of God, or he's a, he's a, a raging lunatic who actually thought he was the Son of God when he wasn't. See, Jesus' words and claims don't, don't leave us with the option of just thinking that Jesus is a good teacher. And it's a helpful thing to go through with someone. Uh, if, you're, if you're talking to them about the gospel and they say, yeah, I think Jesus was a good guy, uh, but I don't think he was the Son of God. I don't think he was the Messiah. Well, then say to them, he doesn't leave you that option. He's either Lord, a lunatic, or a liar. And Luke is implicitly posing that question to us, the readers. Now, we've heard what the angels have had to say. We've heard what Simeon and Anna have had to say. We've now heard what Jesus has said. And so what do you think? Is Jesus the Son of God, or is he a liar or a lunatic? And if he is the Son of God, then you must bow down to him as Lord and give him your life and your obedience. There can be no halfway following Jesus. There can be no, I want to keep one foot in the world and one foot in the camp of Christianity. There is no doing that. If Jesus is the Son of God, he alone must become the Lord of your life. And as the Father says on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my Son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. This is the Son of God. We need to listen to him and follow him. And that's why this is included in Luke's gospel. At this moment, Jesus first vocalizes that he is the Son of God. But we see that even his parents don't quite understand all that that entails. Look at verse 50 and 51. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So you might not be able to understand all that it means that Jesus is the Son of God. But even still, 
No, your response ought to be that of Mary. And Mary treasured up all of these things in her heart. And so treasure up these things this morning. Grapple with this idea that Jesus is the Son of God. God in the flesh who came down, who took on the form of a man, who was sent to do the will of his Father in heaven, was sent to be the fulfillment of this feast that he is celebrating, the feast of the Passover. He was the final Passover lamb, sent to be the once and for all sacrifice, sent to die that we might live, and sent to be risen from the dead that we might be risen along with him to praise him as Lord and King. Treasure up these things in your heart. And then the passage ends with a summary of the rest of the childhood of Jesus. Verse 52 says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. See, Jesus here, he grows intellectually in wisdom. He grows physically in stature. He grows societally in his relationships with other men. But most importantly, he grows in favor with God. He becomes a man who, whom the grace and favor of God rests upon. And may that be true of all of us here. May that be our greatest passion in life, that we grow in favor with God, that we please the Lord with our lives, that we experience the delight of the Lord in our hearts, that we, we feel his presence day by day, that we experience his saving grace and his empowering grace day by day, that we experience the, the power of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit in our lives, to experience the love and the wisdom of God day by day, ever more increasing until that final day when we rest for all eternity in the grace and favor of our Lord. Let's pray.